0: Well, good morning. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, thank you so much for being here. If you are a guest, welcome. I am the worship leader at Parkwood Kings Mountain. My name is Micah. Uh, any other time you'll see me with a guitar in my hand, uh, but this is one of your rare occasions. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. If you will go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 37, uh, that's where we're picking up in our study through Genesis um, So if you know where we are, you know that we're in the story of Joseph. If you're like me, I heard the story growing up of Joseph based off Joseph's perspective. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Joseph, in and of himself, is a perfect typology of Christ. You see, through his faithfulness, through his character, uh, symbolisms of Jesus. So there's nothing wrong with that, but for our perspective, we want to study The book of Genesis in its true context. So with that said, we must begin with the idea of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. You see, everything, of what we're reading, especially Joseph's narrative, is not about Joseph. That's ironic. That does not make sense. The story of Joseph is not even about Joseph. It's actually about Jacob. You see at verse 2, it says that these are the generations of Jacob. So the Joseph narrative is actually a continuation of Jacob. So when we're reading this narrative, we have to keep in mind the promises God's already given us at the beginning of Genesis. First, the seed that he's promised that one day, a seed is going to come to crush the serpent's head and I also want to point you to the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, Genesis 15, verses 12 through 16. See, I, a couple of years ago, I was in a Genesis class through seminary, and one of our big assignments was an Abrahamic Covenant chart. Um, that took 10 hours. That is as fun as it sounds. And my assignment was from Genesis 12.1, when the Abrahamic Covenant, when God first calls Abram, all the way to Genesis 50, I had to mention every single time this covenant is, is stated. Uh, if you can imagine, this is 50 pages of a chart. I will gladly show it to you any time. I'm proud of this thing. Uh, but when I got to Genesis 28, pretty much through 50, I actually enjoyed this because there weren't many more mentions of the covenant, which meant less work for me, which meant I can get home and go to sleep that night. Uh, but for our purposes, if we're not careful, we will forget the covenant God has given Abraham. And this is absolutely pivotal for today's message. So Genesis fifteen twelve through 16 says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and dark, great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, No for certain, biggest covenant that we see that God gives Abraham. If you remember back at this passage this is where God set, goes through the separated carcass of an animal which means that he's swearing on his own name that this is going to be fulfilled. In other words what God promises here in chapter 15 is going to be fulfilled and we're about to see it beginning of this fulfillment right now in Genesis chapter 37. So my goal today My main goal is that the Lord, to show you that the Lord God provides for and protects Joseph to fulfill God's purpose. And I also just want you to see that God will indeed make a great nation out of Jacob. He's going to, and he's going to do it ultimately through the person of Joseph. Joseph is the vehicle in which this whole car is about to turn. So go ahead and come and pray with me. Father, we love you this morning uh, as we've ever been singing. God, there's nothing like you. You are faithful. You're faithful to what you've promised. You're faithful ultimately through Jesus. You're faithful at the cross. You're faithful to this day, God. Your character is worthy of praise, honor, and glory. And so, Father, we exalt you this morning. God, I pray you would turn our attention to Your word, God, I pray that you would make yourself known even greater. This morning, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to come in this place. Fill this place with your presence. Make known Christ. God, I pray that your faithfulness to your people, to your promises is seen. God, I pray that you would speak clearly through me for the sake and glory of your name alone. So, Father, be known, be worshiped, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 37, verse 2 starts like this. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bila and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the sons of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we start to see at verse 2, first off, that Joseph is 17 years old. He's a young man. You notice what he's doing just with his brothers. The exact same thing that he grew up probably hearing. He's doing what his father Jacob did. He's shepherding. And notice also in verse 2 that Joseph brings a report of his brothers back. Now, we don't know the motive behind these reports. But what we do see is that Joseph is already seen as being faithful. He's bringing a report back about his brothers to his father. So I want you to notice as we continue through this narrative that there's a contrast between Joseph's faithfulness and his brother's unfaithfulness. His character compared to his brother's characters. Okay? Now notice in verse 3 that Jacob loves Joseph more than all the other sons. Ironically, the younger son who was neglected by his father ends up falling into the same trap to his own children. Isaac loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. Do you remember that? And now we see the exact same taking place. you think that he would learn from his own family situation to not fall in this trap, yet we see again that he loves Esau. Not just us, son, the son of his beloved wife, Rachel. And notice what he makes. And we know this because if anybody is familiar with the story of Joseph, we all recognize his apparel. Jacob makes a robe of many colors for Joseph. Now, the color situation, that's what we've heard through our whole lives. Scholars debate that. Uh, They say that in the original narrative that possibly wasn't the color of coats. The, the point is not the color, but what it represents. This coat stuck out to the family. It, 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 it was a symbol. And I want I want, to, I want you to listen here. The only other time this type of apparel was ever mentioned is in 2 Samuel 13, where it describes the robe of the princess Tamar. So for this reason, many commentators suggest that this actually has something to do with royalty. So through this coat... Jacob is actually publicly designated Joseph as the ruler over the family. that sound pretty familiar in his own life? So this, this coat is, is not just a, a nice coat he makes for his son. This coat is actually presenting his, his beloved son as the ruler of the entire family. He is possibly going to receive the full inheritance Of the firstborn now go to verse 5 through 8 and 9 through 11 I'm not going to read it for the sake of time but if you know the story of Joseph he has two dreams the first dream from verses 5 through 8 explains that he had a dream that his brothers would initially bow down to him at some point in his life his brothers would bow down to him in the second dream verses 9 through 11 it symbolizes that a sun, moon, and stars would bow down to him, which means that his parents and his brothers would bow down to him. Now, his father rebuked him, but then he begins contemplating. Um, the point is not that necessarily the dreams, but that's the fact that there's two dreams. Uh, in Genesis 41:32, Joseph actually explains this very principle. It says, in the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So in other words, these dreams actually represent that God has gave this dream, (laughs) that this message is from God, and that ultimately this dream would actually be fulfilled by God himself. So I haven't mentioned his brothers for, for a reason. So I want you to think about 11 other brothers whose father loves their second youngest son more than anything. I want you, I want you to think about that this, this father makes a symbol for his son to represent the authority over the rest of the family. Then I also want you to keep in mind that this disaster in 11 brothers' minds is even further developed in the fact that Joseph has a dream which is absolutely understood as God speaking to him, saying this is surely going to take place, that your, son, your brothers are going to bow down to you. So think about that from, I'm the only child that, if you're a sibling, if I've had friends that maybe have been blessed with certain things, and, and uh, you know you get jealous, it's just a natural response. Notice the brother's reaction to Joseph. It is absolutely understandable from our minds. Certain in verse 4, it says that, When they see that their father loves Joseph more than the rest of them, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 5. Joseph tells his brothers of this dream. They hated him even more. In verse 8. After responding to Joseph's dream, they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And watch verse 11. After hearing his brother explain the second dream, his brothers were... Jealous of him. This jealous is a deeper hate than just normal hate. Uh, it actually could represent a, a violent outcome from this feeling. From our perspective, their reaction is very understandable. Here comes a younger brother probably a little arrogant. Look, my father has chosen me over all of y'all. God has now even told me that I'm going to succeed over you. And they absolutely hate this guy. I want you to feel this confrontation about to take place because it's real. They cannot stand this guy, and they're going to do anything they can to get rid of him. So Genesis 37, starting at verse 12, says this. Now his brothers went to the pasture. Their fathers flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see it if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, I want you to notice Jacob's concern for his other, bro- his other sons. Uh, if you remember back in chapter 34, two of uh, Jacob's sons end up going into Shechem and killing all the men plundering the city. Uh, would you say that there's probably still some bad feelings after that predicament? I'd probably say that the name of Israel and his, his sons was probably a hated name. And you see in this, this passage that the brothers are shepherding in Shechem. So Jacob's natural concern is, I hope my sons are okay. So notice who he sends. He sends his faithful son, his obedient son. Just, we just seen in verse uh, two, that Joseph would bring a good, a correct report back to him. So he sends his faithful son to do the exact same thing again. Son, would you go and check on your brothers? And could you just bring me a report back to make sure they're okay? But also, we, in this passage, we see Joseph's determination and character. You see that Joseph's in the middle of a field, and, and he is determined on one thing, and that's fulfilling his father's command to him. That reminds you a lot of Genesis 24, doesn't it, when Abraham makes a, 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 a pact with his servant to go find Isaac a wife. You remember that? You remember the determination that servant did that had? He just, "I am not stopping until this is fulfilled. I'm going to find my master's son a wife." And you see that exact same term, determination here in Joseph. Joseph is not stopping until he finds his brothers and brings a report back to his father. Now I want you to flip it and notice Joseph's brother's perspective. So their youngest son, who has the youngest, one of the youngest sons, is coming to find them, and they see him coming a mile away. Notice verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Have you ever wondered, how does the brothers recognize Joseph from so far away? Probably because of that that stupid coat from their perspective. That coat represents one thing to them, that he has authority over them. And they recognize him from a mile away because he has that coat on and he is coming to them. And that just stirs their emotions. That then also reminds them of his dreams. God promises that this is going to take place. And I want you to notice how they uh, announce him. They say that here comes that dreamer. So what's their plan? Their plan is to kill that dreamer. Why? To kill those dreams. So in other words, their plan is actually to destroy God's plan. But notice in verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, the, the son of Leah, the despised wife, stands up for one of his stepbrothers. He, and there's possibly two reasons. You see that the ultimate reason is that he might rescue him out of the hand to restore him to his father. So why would he need to restore him to his father? I have two possible scenarios. Genesis 35, do you remember this obscure passage where it says that Reuben ends up sleeping with Jacob's wife, Billa? Might be some tension there, right? Maybe to cool the waters a little bit. Maybe the other one... The other scenario might be, based off Genesis 29, 31 through 32, that he possibly might finally get affection and love from his father. You remember for Leah's, when Leah was wanting to have children, what was the reason for that? That I might, if I have children, maybe my husband might finally love me. So maybe, we don't know the actual reason, but the fact is that the brothers end up saying, okay, we like that plan. And then they strip him of his robe, that sign of authority, and throw him into a pit to leave him to die. And starting at verse 25, notice what happens afterwards. And they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let us... Not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers enlisted into to him. Then midnight traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Notice what happens. So they, they throw their, their despised brother into a pit, and then they just sit down. It's like nothing even happened. They leave him to die, yet they sit there like completely calm like it's okay. Their plan initially was to say that their brother was devoured by beasts, a wild beasts, yet in this passage we actually see who the wild beast actually is. So after they throw him in the pit, they end up seeing Ishmaelites coming down for trade, going to Egypt. Now this is significant. I would like you to turn back to Genesis 17 just to uh, see a point here. Genesis 17. Start down at uh, verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be your name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will. Give you a son by her, I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now drop down to verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him great. Now listen, he shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Year. So, if you want to, from that perspective, the promised seed of Isaac is placed into the hands of the the non promised seed, which is Ishmael, whom then takes Joseph, which represents Isaac, down to Egypt. This is beautiful, to fulfill God's purposes. Do not be confused at this moment. God is in control completely. He is providentially working out his purposes even at this low point in Joseph's life. In the midst of slavery, God is still working out his plan. Verses 29 through 35 pretty much present how the sons deceive their father. They use, ironically, goat's blood. They dip Joseph's Robe into it, and then they send it to their father. So the the deceiver Jacob, who used the goat to deceive his own father, is now deceived by goat blood himself. Now, for the sake of clarity in the narrative, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 39, as we continue in the Joseph part of the story. And we're going to pick up right at verse 1. Because this is a continuation of what just took place in 37. So Joseph is sent to Egypt in slavery. And we pick up at verse 1 when he gets there. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of the house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house Field. So this section of scripture, do not miss this. The main point, the main point, is that the Lord was prospering Joseph. But I also want you to notice Joseph's faithfulness. I want you to notice Joseph's character. It didn't change. You notice that the circumstances are horrible, yet his character and his faithfulness never changes. He's faithful to his father to go, go find his brothers. He's now faithful to his master in the midst of slavery. You see his character, you see his faithfulness in the midst of this horrible situation. But here's the point. The key point of this entire narrative is that the Lord was with Joseph. It's used four times in this chapter, 39 alone, three times the narrator links, Joseph's success due to God being with him, the two times the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of God's blessing on Joseph. In verse 3, you see that Potiphar even sees this blessing. Do you notice that? Is, verse 3, it says, His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So this is a natural investment strategy. If you know sports at all, you, you, you know that people are willing to spend millions of dollars on a single player. Why? They believe if they invest in that player, that player is in return going to produce championships for them. Do they not? This is, you see this all in business, You see this, Nolan. In jobs, I'm going to invest my time and energy in that person because I believe I'm going to receive something from them as well. And this is exactly what Potiphar does in his home. He sees that everything Joseph does, he touches, is blessed. It succeeds in all he does. So Potiphar is naturally saying, I want part of that. So what does Potiphar do? He places everything that he owns in the hands of Joseph. And then notice at verse 5, it says, The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. So, here's a quote. Everything that Potiphar owned was under the care of Joseph, and it flourished. He was the faithful servant par excellence. Potiphar had no need to be concerned about anything he had, even his wife. Which leads us completely right to verse 6 through 20. How then can I do this great wickedness against, and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside or to be with her. Notice in 6b that Joseph is an attractive person just like his mother, Rachel. He's, he's young, he's built right in Potiphar's wife, his master's wife, sees this, and she begins to forward herself to him. And, and there's, we, could, we could speak a whole time about Joseph's refusal and his escape of all these temptations. But I want you to notice why he refuses. Go to it's in verses 8 through 9. His main point, his main reason for not falling to this temptation is it says that how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. So convinced that he was chosen by God to rule, Joseph would not sin against God. Sure that God was with him as he faithfully served Potiphar. He would not do wickedly against his master. He knew that he could not succeed by defying God. Two points that was in the heart of of Joseph during these times of refusal. Number one, God had chosen him for a special task. Number two, God had been prospering him to give him the responsibilities that he had. Does that not remind you of Hebrews 12? Let me read it for you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jacob or Joseph did not want to fall into this temptation, mainly because he did not want to disobey his God. He knew God was with him, and he would not succeed without him. Just as Hebrews, we look to Christ. We lay all sin, all shame for the sake of God of the glorious future ahead of us. Equally important is this lesson. The resistance to temptation does not always find immediate reward. I would love to tell you that because of Joseph's obedience and and refusal to sleep with his master's wife, that everything just worked out perfectly for him. Uh, you'll read a little bit later in this chapter that he is thrown in prison, mainly due because of his master's wife's false accusation. He he flees from a very intense temptation, and Potiphar's wife picks up his cloak and pretty much lies about Joseph. He says that she says that he came in, to tried to rape her, and all these kind of things. And his father, uh, her, her husband, ends up. Uh, believe in her and throws him into prison so the faithful god-fearing man in the midst of temptation flees from it yet is still punished so i'm gonna stop here for a second because if this story is about joseph how in the world does chapter 38 even relate If you just read the text on its own, it makes no sense in the narrative because you're sitting there thinking, well, I want to learn about Joseph. And all of a sudden you were mentioning Judah and Tamar, Moses. Why in the world? Uh, I also want to remind you again that this narrative is not about Joseph. Remember, God promised the seed in Genesis chapter 3. And his seed is going to come, he's going to fulfill exactly what he promises. And chapter 38 completely points to how this seed is going to come to bear. So if you will, very quickly, Genesis chapter 38, I'm going to read the first five verses and then tell you the brief story. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adamite, whose name was Hira, their Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again, bore a son, and called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son. She called his name Shalah. Judah was in Chazam when she bore him. Now, notice in verse 1 that unlike Joseph who was forcibly led out of his father's home in the promised land, Judah here is seen as willfully leaving his father, his family. Furthermore, his, the promises God gave Abraham all the way back in chapter 12. Judah despises his brother. He is the, the main uh, genius who decided to send his brother to slavery in the first place. And now we see this deceitful, simple brother now leaving his family, leaving the promised seed, and not just leaving his promised seed, but marrying a Canaanite woman. Now, if you remember back in Genesis, Abraham was completely against marrying a Canaanite woman. Why? Because they are a cursed people. Yet we see here Judah, simple brother, going and marrying a Canaanite woman, and notice that he has three sons. Now, when these sons get older, the oldest son is named Ur. Ur is given to a woman named Tamar for marriage. Uh, we we'll read later on the text that Ur is sinful in the eyes of God. God therefore kills Ur because of his wickedness. The very first person God kills because of sin individually. We then see that based off this marriage, uh, this type of marriage, uh, we know this later in, in Matthew 22, Jesus references this, that if, if, a, if, a, if a son marries a woman and that son passes away, the next son in line then marries the widow to continue the seed of the deceased son or the deceased brother. So, I want, so Onan here, uh, if he has a child, he then would further Ur's seed. Onan here refuses to... Uh, Carry on his father's seed, therefore is seen as wicked in the eyes of the Lord, is killed as well. Then you see in verse eleven in chapter thirty-eight that Judah said to Tamar, who now is a widow of two. It says, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter in law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in his father's, her father's Home. See, so Judah here thought it was Tamar who had the problem. But we actually see that the problem is not in Tamar, but it's in Judah and his wicked, wicked descendants. It's his sin that God is punishing, not Tamar. Tamar is seen here as actually righteous compared to Judah. And So in the story, uh, the youngest son grows up. Judah never gives him to marry Tamar. Tamar recognizes that she is never going to receive the rights in which she truthfully deserves within this marriage um, way. And so she decides to put everything in in her own hands. She she dresses as a prostitute, and I'm not making this up. You can look it up. (laughs) She dresses like a prostitute and then finds out that her father-in-law is going to go to a nearby town to do some work. She sits in front of the, the town gate, then to, proceeds to deceive her father-in-law by having intercourse with him. Now she before all this takes place, uh, she says, "Well, if we, if we do all this, how are you going to pay me?" Judah says that I'm going to give you a young goat, but until then I'm going to give you basically, in modern terms, my identification, my credit card, my license." And I'm just going to give this to you to make sure that when I come back with my payment, that you will rightfully receive this. And so they proceed. Ironically, his daughter-in-law, who he neglected, becomes pregnant with his own children. And then three months later, after realizing that she is by then showing, Judah finds out and says, "Kill her! Kill her! She's been unlawful. She's she's been unfaithful. Kill her!" And while they're dragging her out to burn her, she says, wait, send this identification and give this message. To the man who owns this identification is the father. You see in this narrative that Judah says that he finds out and he says that this woman is actually more rightful than I am. And through this unlikely, awful circumstance, Tamar ends up with two sons. Pregnant with twins, at the time of birth, the, the, older, the older sibling comes out, but then some miraculous way, the younger child comes out first. And that younger son is named Perez. Now, I'd like to ask you this question today. Between Joseph and Judah, who is the promised seed? Who's the promised seed? And I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 really quickly. We're going to find out the answer. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 1. Turn at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And drop down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You see... The story of Judah is the same exact story that you and I share if we are called to salvation through Christ Jesus. Judah, in every sense of the word, does not deserve grace. He deserves God's wrath, absolutely. If anything, why would not Joseph rightfully deserve to continue on the seed of the promised Messiah? But we see here that God, through His sovereign grace, calls Judah to be the continuation of the seed, therefore having a child who continues the seed from there. And is that not your and my? Absolute testimony if we have been saved by the grace of God. Us deserving God's wrath, His condemnation. We absolutely have been pouring on grace and now are considered sons and daughters of the living God of this universe. You see, Judah's story is not much different than your and mine. And in the midst of this text, we see that God is still concerned about his promises. He is going to fulfill them. We see that through the continuation of Joseph and persevering Joseph through the midst of hardship and suffering, the seed is therefore continued on in chapter 38. So let me ask this question. Why does everything happen to Joseph? Joseph is faithful. He's considered as obedient. Yet... Through his obedience, he is still thrown into prison. And the answer is in Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph, speaking to his own brothers later on, says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, in actuality, everything that happens to Joseph, God sovereignly and providentially directs and leads for the glory and honor of his own name, for his redemptive purposes, for the continuation of the sea, which is furthermore points to Christ Jesus. You see, everything that happens to Joseph is not a random occurrence. God is working in the midst of trials and joy for the glory of his own name and for the good of his people. So what? How does this relate to you and I today, 2017? One main point: The Lord God provides for and protects His people to fulfill His purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. I'd love to tell, sit here, stand here right now, and tell you that I understand and tell you exactly why good people go through bad things, why God's people have to suffer. I'd love to tell you that I have every answer to that. I don't. But I can tell you one example really quickly. Um, uh, I knew a young guy named Austin who about a year ago was diagnosed with cancer. Um, saved at an early age. Had a passion for Christ. Loved. He, he had his, his Christmas present when he was like six or seven was a pulpit was because he, loved, he just loved preaching. That's this kid. And he eventually is called into ministry He starts school, and at the age of 19, finds out, in the midst of school, that he is diagnosed with cancer, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the liver and the lungs. And through a battle of chemo and a battle of cancer for over a year, he eventually ends up the cancer spreading through his brain, and this past April, he passes away. And I would love to say right now that I understand exactly why he went through that, but... uh, I do know that he probably reached more people in one year than he ever would the rest of his life. He reached thousands, thousands of people through website, Facebook, internet, television. With the sake of the gospel, he joyfully expressed Jesus in the midst of persecution and suffering. He rested fully on God's providential care. And he's now uh, boasting with the Savior. That's, that's the good news. But why did he go through that? Ultimately, I believe with all my heart, God providentially is working through him even in the midst of suffering. Just like you and I today who go through hardships and sufferings in this world, God is providentially working through that for the good of his people, for his redemptive purposes. And that's encouraging this morning. This not only brings us comfort in the middle of our trouble, hardship now, but it also gives us encouragement and boldness to go and make Jesus known in all areas in our lives. I'm telling you right now, it is not by chance that you are at your job, at your specific school, with specific people that you are at now. God has put you there for a purpose, and that purpose is to make Him known. He is worthy of praise, and He is worthy of everything of your life. So here's my prayer as we close. That no matter what happens in this life, no matter the joy or pain that we go through, may we rest in God's protection, His sovereign purposes, His sovereign grace, and may we make much of Christ in His glorious gospel. Let me pray. Father, uh, what can we say except You are worthy? You are awesome. God, you are in control of this universe. And, Lord, we thank you today that you are faithful. You're faithful to what you've promised. You're faithful to the glory of Christ. You're you're faithful because we can just look at the cross and see the joy that you are faithful to, God. We, We see that. And even in the midst of the worst moment in history, which is the death of your own son for the sake of sinners, you used the worst moment in history to make right sinners. To make right sinners who deserve wrath. And you now call us sons and daughters. So Father, we praise you and worship you this day that you are in control, not only of the joy, but of the hardships of life as well, God. And I pray simply for the one hurting in this place right now, God. Who's going through pain, who's going through suffering. God, I pray for comfort, God. Would you comfort him just like you comfort Joseph? in the midst of slavery, God, you, you sit your presence you